Hello. Can I get you back? Come and find a seat. Good morning. For those of you who don't know who I am, uh, my name is James. I'm part of the staff team here at South of Sunday Vineyard. Um, I'm married to Jane. We have a wonderful little boy, Leo, who's there. Um, we're expecting number two in June. Oh, that was dramatic. Wow. Um, I've been a part of this church for, if you can believe it, 18 years now. And today, Neil and Kate have asked me to share with you all. Um, I'm just going to quickly fix this lectern because it's going to drive me crazy. It's slightly wobbly. So just bear with me for one second. Sorry? Sorry, there we go. That'll do. Um, so yeah, Neil and Kate have asked me to speak today. Today is the last day of Advent. Um, yes, it is Christmas Day on Tuesday. Um, and today we're going to be looking at the subject of joy. Um, so we'll get started. Robin Williams, I hope there's a picture. This man who brought so much joy into our lives. I grew up on so many wonderful films um, where he brought so much laughter. Films like Mrs. Doubtfire, Jumanji, or even Aladdin, he was the genie, if you remember. Um, just to name a few. But I can't help but think of him as an archetype for our culture. Because behind that smile, and it was a great smile, there was a, a deep well of sadness. And in our society, loneliness, isolation, sadness are on the up. And at this time of year, Christmas, a time that's meant to be filled with joy, we know that the opposite also exists for many. And even in the church, behind the smile, the hi, how are you, the great clap, 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 um, there can be a low-grade anxiety and depression, which we, we think is the new normal. And a lot of people think that Jesus has um, nothing to bring, nothing to say about things like joy or happiness. Many of us think of Jesus as many of the paintings have portrayed him throughout history, like this one from the Sistine Chapel. Very white and very thin, let alone that he was a Jew who grew up in Africa. But above all, he's very serious and, and sad. But right from the start of Jesus' life, we are given a very different story. So take a look with me at Luke chapter 2. Uh, the word should appear behind me. There you go. Now, this is from verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy. Jesus, from the moment of his birth, brought joy. Never mind the fact 
that there was a prophecy in the Psalms that said, and I quote, he would, he would be anointed with the oil of, oil, of, oil of joy more than anyone else. And that prophecy is requoted in Hebrews in the New Testament. And so the surprising testimony of the Gospels is that Jesus was a man of unparalleled and unshakable joy. We see Jesus' own joy when he makes himself the shepherd in the parable of the lost sheep. What does he do when he finds the lost sheep? Truly, I I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that, that, that never went astray. When he has found it, he says, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. That's from Luke 15. So Jesus is someone full of joy. And we are meant to become more and more like Jesus in everything that we do. And there are two things that we learn from Jesus on the subject of joy. First is that God is the most joyful being in the universe. Crash course in theology, Jesus is the embodiment of God. In Jesus, we see what God is like. Put another way, Jesus is like God, and God is like Jesus. And Jesus is full of joy. Quote from the Psalms, he's anointed with the oil of joy more than anyone else. And therefore, God is full of joy. Just think about it. On page one of the Bible, we see God sing the universe into existence, the creation story. And the theme of that song is, it is good. Sea, land, trees, animals, it is good. My point is, at the center of the universe is a God full of joy. I'm going to do a quick exercise. There's not that many of us, so we can do it. Can, you, can I get you to close your eyes for a moment? Will you do it? I mean, you don't have to do it. We're all Londoners here, so you're not going to do it. You don't want to do it. Why don't you close your eyes for a moment? Um, Think of the most beautiful place that you have ever been to in your life. You got it? Okay, now three or four of you shout out somewhere. Where? London. Brilliant. Okay, very close to home. Any other ones? Austria. Cape Town. Good, Cape Town. Where? <laughs> Chile, somewhere in Chile. A desert in Chile. It's beautiful, apparently. Well, what about the Swiss Alps? Have you ever been to the Swiss Alps? Beautiful. Franz Schuch in, Cape, in um, South Africa. Pretty beautiful. Okay, another exercise. Close your eyes again. Think of the, the best day of your life, or in the top five. Okay, I'll go first this time. The birth of my son Leo has to be up there. What about someone else? Marriage. Wedding day? It's good. Any others? Passing your driving test. That's really good. Okay. Now, whatever God's relationship is to time and space, and, and theologians debate that, but whatever it is, it's very different to mine and to yours. There is no place that God is not. He's in Cape Town. He's in the desert in Chile or London. Um, 
There is no place that God is not. Um, God is there right now. Think about the happiest moments of your life, your wedding day, or passing your driving test. God is there in that moment, feeling all of that delight and joy. Now, you're all bright, thinking people. And I know what you're thinking. If that is true, then it also means the flip side is true. If God is in the Swiss Alps, in Cape Town, then he's also at a work camp in North Korea or in the war in Yemen or in Indonesia right now after this morning. And, it's, and if he's at, at your wedding day or at the birth of my son Leo, then he's also in Auschwitz in 1944 or Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945. He is there in all of that pain and all of that sadness. And yes, he is. Hence, this prophecy from Isaiah 53, which said of Jesus, he was a man of suffering and familiar with pain. The both and. Full of joy, but a man of suffering, familiar with pain. And one thing you realize as you get older is that there aren't good seasons and bad seasons in life. There is just life. There are always things which I feel sad, grief, disappointment about. And there are always things that I'm grateful for, pinch myself. I can't believe this is my life. God feels both, but here's the difference. God has a vantage point throughout time where he can see that all sadness is passing away, but joy will last forever. Think of it this way. The scriptures say that God is love. They never say that God is wrath, but we hear about the wrath of God. But wrath is a subcategory of love. It is the emotionally healthy response of a father or mother to wrongdoing in the life of a child. When my son Leo or any of our children does something wrong, or when wrong is done to them, I feel anger not because um, I feel... I feel anger not in spite of my love, but because of my love for Leah or for any of our children. The same is true, I think, of sadness and joy. God is joy. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. You never read that God is sadness, but you hear about the sadness of God. And Jesus wept and he broke down. The sadness of God is a subcategory of the joy of God. It is the emotionally healthy response of a father who has nothing but the full measure of joy for his son or daughter, but who is up against evil. But God has this vantage point over the horizon to the day that Jesus returns when all evil is snuffed out forever. And in that moment, God will revert to his true nature, to his baseline emotional and relational relation disposition of love, joy, and peace. God will never get angry again. He will never be sad ever again. Revelation 24, 4 says, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. The second thing we learn from Jesus is that God's plan for your life and for mine is to grow us and mature us into the kind of person who is as joyful as he is. Hence Jesus' prayer for us as his followers in John 17, verse 13, which says, I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of joy within them. 
Have you ever experienced such an overwhelming sense of joy that it just overflows from you, that you're bursting with joy? Two, I thought two examples. One was whitewater rafting on the Zambezi River in Zimbabwe. That was by far, I was just literally smiling the whole time. I was just bursting with joy. And the second was at a, at a worship conference a couple of years ago. Um, I, uh, there, was just this, there was this moment during worship when I just had an overwhelming sense of joy. Neil was there as well. And this happened to Neil as well. But um, uh, all I could do in, in response to that overwhelming sense of joy was to dance. And I, the thing you need to know about me is I do not dance. And neither does Neil. But he was dancing like crazy. I'm fessing up. What? David's tent. Yeah, there you go. There was this moment, and then, and just the joy overflowed. Anyway, um, that is what joyful means, full of joy, to overflowing, as it says in John 17, 13. And Jesus' plan for your life and for mine is to grow you into the kind of person for whom that experience where you, are, you overflow with joy is your new normal. But here is where a lot of us go wrong. Joy isn't just an emotion. Joy is an overall condition of the heart. Your heart, in the biblical terms, can be defined as your thinking, your feeling, and your will, what you want. It's what you think about, it's what you feel, and it's what you desire. Jesus' plan isn't to just get you to read your Bible and get you to go to church and to just dump joy on you in those moments. It's not that he doesn't do that, but it's not his plan. It's not his MO. I think that's how I used to think, I, that I needed to wait for a conference like David's Tent or Soul Survivor or National Leaders Conference for, for God to pour out his Holy Spirit on me and fill me with joy. And I think lots of us think like that, waiting for God to just throw a joy bomb in certain moments, like a water balloon or something. Boom. <laughs> but I think there is some truth in that. God does do that to me and you, but where he just, where he just pours out joy on you. But this is not Jesus' agenda for your life. It's not his main agenda, at least. Jesus has far more ambition for you and for me. He wants to grow you and mature you into a person who is joyful. The overall condition of your heart the fabric of your character, your personality, that you would, have, you would have become joyful, at peace kind of man or woman. So how do we do this? The short answer is through what Richard Foster calls the spiritual discipline of celebration. There is a command that runs right through the New Testament from Jesus and then repeated particularly from Paul, and it's this, to rejoice. It's the verb form of the noun joy. Rejoice means to joy. But most of us don't think of joy as a discipline at all. We, we don't think we have a responsibility in joy. We just kind of wait for the water balloon from heaven. But it just doesn't work like this. Richard Foster says this. The quote should hopefully come up. The decision to set the mind on the higher things of life is an act of the will. That is why celebration is a discipline. 
It is not something that falls on our head. It is the result of a consciously chosen way of thinking and living. As we choose that way, the healing and redemption in Christ will break into the inner recesses of our lives and relationships, and the inevitable result will be joy. The beauty of this discipline is that it's not rocket science. It's very simple. There are two basic steps, thinking and living. First, set your mind on joy. As we all know, you can't will joy. Joy is more than an emotion, but it's not less. And you can't will an emotion. There's no switch. There's no turn off the sad switch, turn on the happy switch. Turn off the stressed out switch, turn on the chill switch. We don't have control over our emotions. As a result of that, many of us live at the mercy of our emotions, live as victims to our emotions. But we do have control over our mind, over our thought life, what we set our attention on, what we give our mental real estate to. And as a general rule, your feelings follow your thought life. If you think about right now how horrible your boss is or, and the injustice of big corporations, what do you start to feel? Anger. If you start to think about the state of politics in this country and what is going to happen or not going to happen with Brexit early next year, or you think about America and Donald Trump and the fact that he has a button on his desk. Really, he has a button, that guy. What do you feel? Anxiety. If in the same way, if you think about God and how good he is and how at the center of the universe is a being who is the source of pure love and joy and peace, and you think about all that is good and beautiful and true in this universe, what do you feel? You feel joy. Because your feelings follow your thinking. So you can't will joy But you can will a thought life that is curated in such a way that joy is an inevitable byproduct of it. Now, we see this in Paul's letter to the Philippians. Philippians 4, which says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. So there's the command that we were talking about earlier, rejoice. But then Paul has a few exercises or steps for you and I to grow into mature people. So we take a look at verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, there, so there are three-ish steps in here for how you and I are to set our minds on joy. Firstly, surrender the illusion of control over to God. Verse 6 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. 
In other words, give it all over to God. If you want to be a joyful person, you have to, become, have to come to the place where you release and you let go and you surrender the illusion of control. And you release outcomes to God. This is not a weird name it and claim it kind of thing where you believe that nothing bad happens to you. That's a recipe for disillusionment and disenchantment and disaster. It's, it's far deeper than that. It's where you say, no matter what, no matter what happens to me, if, if what I fear happens or doesn't happen to me, either way, I'm okay because I have a life with God. And it doesn't mean that you don't grieve or lament or process. It doesn't mean that at all. It means that the great end of our maturity is where you come to this idea of detachment. You have to detach where your happiness and emotional life is not based on your circumstances. It doesn't mean you don't care. It just means you have your life with God. You recognize that you can't control life. You can't control the world. You can't control people. Don't try to. The end result of that is manipulation and anger. So you release control and you surrender. The second thing you do is you work you give thanks. You work gratitude into every fiber of your being. Whatever it is, you work thankfulness into everything you do. You work thankfulness into the big things and the small things. Work that into your mind's new normal. I will never forget um, talking to a vineyard pastor um, who runs a, um, a big church in uh, the USA. Um, he's a guy who's been around in the vineyard since the early days and there was a period in his life where he was suffering from depression to the extent that he had to take time off from pastoring his church. Um, and he said at the time that he found being a Christian quite difficult, and he found a whole thing, bunch of things that we would normally do, like worshipping or praying, just too painful and hard to do, disingenuous. But what he was able to do was to be thankful he could bring himself to thank God for small things, for his home, for his roof over his head, for his family, for God's provision in his life. And he spoke about that as one of the most important things to begin his journey back out of that dark place that he had found himself in, the power of being thankful. Third, you focus your attention on all that is good in the world, if you're anything like me, your mind gravitates towards the negative and not the positive. We are pretty messed up as human beings. We have this leaning in ourselves where 10 things happen to, to us in a day. Nine of them are amazing. One of them is bad. What do we think about when we go to bed that night? The one thing. Ten things are spoken to us in a day. Nine of them are a blessing. One of them is a snarky comment. What do we think about at night? The snarky comment. We need to focus our attention on all that is good in the world. And that's a difficult thing to do in a world and a culture that focuses on the negative. N.T. Wright, um, on his commentary to the, on the Philippians passage that we've just read, says this, the quote should appear behind me as well. 
The command in verse 8 to think about all the wonderful and lovely things listed here runs directly opposite to the habits of mind instilled by the modern media. Read the newspapers. Their stock in trade is anything that is untrue, unholy, unjust, impure, ugly, of ill repute, vicious and blameworthy. Is that a true representation of God's good and beautiful world? How are you going to celebrate the goodness of the Creator if you feed your mind only on the places in the world which humans have made ugly? How are you going to take steps to fill your mind instead with all the things that God has given us to be legitimately pleased with and enjoy and celebrate? We have to discipline our minds to focus on the good in this world. How do you set your mind on joy? You surrender the illusion of control over to God. You give thanks and you focus your attention on all that is good. This is how you set your mind on joy. It's how you curate your thought life to align with Jesus. And if we do this, we will become, over time, a joyful people. And secondly and quickly, we move our body into joy. In my morning routine, in my weekday life, put into practice and you will become joyful. For a start, that means most of us need to slow our bodies down. We need to sleep more, eat healthy and exercise. We need to be exercising Sabbath rest and silence. And if you, if you want to find more out about that, there's, Neil did a great series. I've been mean to Neil about his dancing, so I need to be nice, right? Neil did an amazing series. Um, it's like a comment. That's what you're going to think about tonight. Uh, Neil did, Neil did a, a really great series um, this year in January and February on rhythms of grace, seeking God in silence and solitude. It's really, it really is worth checking out um, to look into all that bunch of stuff. <laughs> yeah. Okay, but the thing we need to remember, and we'll end with this, is that Following these steps is a choice. We have to, as a people, choose joy. Henry Nouwen. I'm not sure how you actually say his name. Is it Nouwen? Henry Nouwen? 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 Henry Nouwen. He's uh, no longer with us. But he, he said this about joy. Joy is what makes life worth living. But for many... Joy seems hard to find. They complain that their lives are sorrowful and depressing. What then brings joy, the joy we so much desire? Are some people just lucky while others have run out of luck? Strange as it may sound, we can choose joy. Two people can be part of the same event. I've lost my name, sorry. But one may choose to live it quite differently from the other. One may choose to trust that what happened, painful as it may be, holds a promise. The other may choose despair and be destroyed by it. What makes us human is precisely this freedom of choice. Why don't you stand?